Well, all right, friends, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning as we dig in to God's Word. We're going to begin in 3.16. We're going to go through to the end of 4.16. So uh, it would be good if you had your Bibles with you in some form, uh, device, uh, in print. Uh, and, and, and as we jump in, I want to um, share something that I shared about six years ago. It was an intro six years ago. Now, the reality for pastors is we know most people don't remember anything we say after about five minutes after the sermon. So we're safe if we say share something that we shared about six years ago. Uh, and uh, this um, <clears throat> this illustration in particular comes from one of my favorite comedians. It's a guy by the name of Brian Regan. Uh, he was my favorite comedian in the early 2000s to mid-2000s. And um, he talks about how he's relatively introverted. He doesn't get out for dinners much, but uh, he shared about one dinner where he did, and he talked about this one character at the table called the Me Monster. Uh, we all know who the Me Monsters are if we've been to dinner with them or in a conversation with them, right? Uh, it's the person where uh, you essentially say something like, well, you know, you tell a story and they go, that's nothing. You know, you're like, <laughs> okay, well, sorry, my life is so uninteresting, right? That uh, literally what I just shared with you is worth nothing. And, and they come in and they say, well, look, here's this, here's this. We call, I call them the one-uppers, right? It's the person who's like, oh yeah, but this. Oh yeah, well, listen to this, right? And he tells a story about um, how he made the mistake one time of telling a two-wisdom-tooth story. Uh, he's talking at dinner and he says, hey, uh, don't ever tell the two-wisdom-tooth story. I remember I was at dinner. He's like, yeah, I had two wisdom teeth taken out. And he said, you know what's going to happen? Immediately, the four wisdom teeth people are going to parachute in and they're going to land on the path, and they're going to go, you know, freeze to wisdom tooth tail teller, right? I had four extracted, and they were wrapped around my brain, and it was really hard, and, you know, uh, so on and so forth. And and me, me and I, right? And he's just totally obsessed with himself. And he ends the skit by basically saying, hey, I, I wish I've walked on the moon. He said, because if I've walked on the moon, whenever the me monster comes out, and they're like, me, me, I, and me, and me, and you're nothing, and me, and I. He, he could just sit there and be like, mm-hmm, yes, that's very interesting. Uh-huh. I walked on the moon. <laughs> right? You win! There's no other story that you can tell that would win in the midst of that. And so why do I share that? Well, um, it's interesting. I was thinking back about six years ago when I told this story, and, and how I framed it up then is, you know, as fallen human beings, post-Genesis 3, I believe our default is towards the me, is to be totally self-absorbed, is to be the one-uppers. It's not towards being curious about other people or asking questions. It's focused on the me. And I thought that six years ago, and I've seen that in my own heart six years ago, and I would say it's been amplified since the pandemic. As I've paid attention, and as I've paid attention to my own heart, and even the conversations. Last week at General Assembly, a bunch of pastors. It was amazing. I was exhausted after so many dinners because I felt like I was just going, oh yeah, oh yeah, but this. And I was just trying to break in the conversation. And, 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 and honestly, I feel like we've just gone more and more inward. We've become more and more prone to be navel gazers and just to think about me and my world and to neglect what's going on in the lives of people around us, people we love, people we live with, people we worship with, people who we share a property line with. And so what the preacher, Cahelet, is going to do as we venture into this section of Ecclesiastes is he is taking our eyes off of the me and reorienting us to the we. 
that we have been made for each other, not just for ourselves. And so I'm going to steal, borrow, whatever you want to put, put it. I'm giving him credit, but I'm going to uh, kind of take the outline of David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards, and, and basically give you the two bullet points for this morning. Is, is The first is um, when we hate our neighbor and live the me life, we are actually doing harm to ourselves. And the second thing we're going to look at briefly, when we love our neighbors, do you know what we're actually doing? We're actually loving ourselves. That's what Kahelet is going to hold before us here this morning. And so um, there's one, two, three, four areas of me focus that we're going to look at. The first is rather extensive. It's this idea of oppression that we see here. But then the last three categories, we're going to see envy, laziness, and frenzy. These are all four ways uh, that when we live the me-centered life comes out in hating our neighbor in essentially destroying ourselves. Here's the first one, and it's this picture of oppression. Follow along with me. We're going to read 16 to 18 together. He writes this. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter, for every work. And I said in my heart with regards to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that them, they themselves are beasts. And then are we skipping to 4.1 here? Yeah, let's go down to 4.1. He said, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. So that's our beginning text. That's the first thing we see here. Kahelet guiding us to this reality that the me-centered life often, and I would argue almost always, will lead to some form of oppression. The first thing we see here in 16 and 17 is that this is really the reality of life. Everywhere we go, we see this picture that in places that are supposed to yield justice, there's often wickedness. There's corruption. There's abuses of power. We understand this picture of oppression a little bit better as we look at 4.1, where he says, I looked at all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of the oppressors, there was power. You see, uh, inherent to this conversation of oppression, there is this idea of power. Power is something that is not inherently wrong, but in a post-Genesis 3 world, what we see is power is something that is often abused. We often cling to it in our meanness and say, hey, I have the power, I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to push down others who don't have it. That's the default of our sinful hearts. Now friends, I just want you to bear with me as I read through these, but I do want to name some of the areas where we see this profoundly in our American culture. And I am going to name areas where I have seen it over the course of seven years of ministry, pastoral ministry here and even beyond in campus ministry. The first is a picture of husbands. Husbands, the ones in Ephesians chapter 5 are told to lay down our lives for our wives and to nourish our spouses, to love our children and to shepherd them. But what I have seen far too often are the very ones who are 
called to nourish and to care actually use our bodies or our tempers or our words or our bank accounts to oppress, to abuse, to silent, and to scare our wives and our children to death. Can I be clear? God hates that. Hates that. It is one of the greatest deformities of the clearest picture of the gospel that we have in marriage. Here's another one. One of the most powerless. The unborn are killed under the guise of my rights. And here's the flip side of that. The very people who make a choice to not end the life of the unborn are often met with aloofness, a lack of support, a vote's all that mattered, and usually silence, oftentimes from the church. That's horrific. How about this? A story from this past week. A man I discipled for four years. Loves Jesus. He's a pastor. Haven't seen him in 12 years. He's, he married as a missionary a South Korean woman. They've had three beautiful children together. And I just sat on the edge of the bed as he shared stories of insults hurled at them on playgrounds over the course of the pandemic. And even before that, how often they were ignored because they didn't speak the language well. What about my black brothers and sisters who have observed time and time again the very system that is meant to protect them becomes something that they are utterly fearful of. Friends, this is the oppression in our own nation. Then you go to China and you see what's happening with the Uyghurs. Kidnapped, re-educated, killed. Because they don't agree with the Chinese government. Or you go to other developing nations that claim to be 85% Christian. And it's actually some of the most corrupt governments in the world. Keeping foreign aid for themselves. Friends, oppression is a reality of a post-Genesis 3 world. Now, there's this cry in our heart as we look at this. Why the delay, God? As we read this, he's just saying it matter-of-factly. Oppression doesn't go away. And the cry of our hearts when we see oppression is, why the delay? And that's a complicated answer, and we do not know the heart of God. But let me say this. This book continues to be remarkably stubborn in my reading of it, at least in Kehelet's answer in part as to why the delay. In 18, he says, He says, I said in my heart with regards to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are beasts. I don't get this. I don't like this. But for some reason, God uses the continued oppression that we see in our world today to test. This term test means to bring to light. And I think it proves two things to us that we see here in this passage overtly. One, verse 16, the fact that every single one of us is prone to greed and cunning in our affairs 
in order to keep our power. Here's the second thing it shows us. Verse 19. From dust we come, to dust we will return. It proves to us that we are fallen and weak creation. We are not the creator. 19 is just a restatement of Genesis 3.19, where in the middle of, of, of God naming the curse of the fall, he says, from dust you come, to dust you will return. And here's the irony in the midst of our meanness, in the midst of us saying, I'm God, I'm better than the Creator. The irony is that we die like beasts because we fancied ourselves as God. Eric Kidner said that. It's this reality that, that we will return to dust because of our very rebellion against the Creator where we say, no, I'm a better God than you are. Verses 20 and 22, I actually love it. it. To me, it makes sense of what we're seeing, especially among young people in the church. Did you read it? To hell, it's quite fatalistic. He says, so I saw that there's nothing better than a man should just rejoice in his work. He's like, here's all the oppression in the world. I give up. No matter how much I work to solve one area of oppression, there's other areas of oppression worldwide that is innumerable, and we're exposed to it more than any other generation because we have a news feed that talks about um, uh, you know, Giannis having a knee injury in the finals, and then uh, we see oppression in Africa. My goodness, my head's exploding right now. I want to just give up and walk away and go watch Netflix and go busy myself and work because I can't handle all the oppression that's coming at us. And this is saying, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. In fact, verse 20, did you read it? What does it say? 21, he says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward in the spirit or the beast or goes downward to earth. He's having a crisis of faith. He's saying in the midst of oppression, I don't even know if I believe in the afterlife anymore. I love the Bible. It is so honest. Friends, if you are struggling in your faith, if you see oppression and you are feeling like, I can't ask a question, I can't wrestle, I can't have any doubts, I think this gives you permission to struggle, even in the context of the church. So what do we do with this? What do we, how do we deal with the oppression that's coming at us. Well, uh, we need to kind of expand our view for a second and then come back in. The first word to kind of expand our view is especially for those who are saying, I'm just going to go numb myself so that I don't have to pay attention to the oppression anymore, or I'm just going to give up on my faith because I can't trust the God who's there. Let me just beg you to not give up, but rather to look up and to look at what we see, first off, from Jesus himself. Mark 7, he's faced with a man who is, is deaf and then he has a speech impediment and he goes to heal him. He says, looking to, the, or looking to the heaven, he sighed and said, I can't even say that word, ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. And his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Friends, do you see that word right there? He sighed. He didn't just heal there is this, a lot of commentators would say, groan from Jesus as he was healing this man, sighing at the sin, sighing at the brokenness. It affects him deeply. So deeply that Philippians 2 says, he counted equality with God, something not to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became the form of a servant for us to set in motion 
a redemption and a restoration that will one day be brought to its full in that passage that we saw in the book of Revelation. So in the beginning, let me just encourage you to stare at and to study Jesus in those moments where you feel like just throwing in the towel. Here's a second image I want to give you. Bob Flayhart, he's a pastor at Oak Mountain Church, uh, was reminded of it this week. He, he talks about the gospel waltz. The gospel waltz. So, so in the gospel waltz, the music that we are called to listen to if we claim to be followers of Christ is the gospel. He's died for us. We have justification. He is cleansing us from the pollution of sin. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. He is moving us towards an eternity that will one day uh, undo all of the hard things. That's the music that we listen to, and we all find ourselves on various dance floors. Sometimes it's dance floors in the home. Sometimes it's dance floors at work. And, and right now, I think the dance floor we're talking about is how do we wrestle with the oppression that we see? And he says there's three steps to this gospel waltz. It's repent. That means turn away from our unbelief, from the gods that we've set up in our lives. It's believe. Believe God is who He says He is. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, fight. I believe in the midst of Kehelet's doubting here in verse 17, we see him wrestling with this idea of belief. He said, I said in my heart in 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. In the midst of the oppression we see here, Scripture constantly calls us to the fact that it will not go unpunished. That one day Christ will judge every single act of wickedness. And so part of that gospel waltz is repenting from where we actually don't believe that. Even though we can't see it with our eyes, saying, Lord, I turn away from my godness as a creation and turn to your true godness as my creator. But then the third thing I want us to look at is this picture that we're called as the church to continue to fight against these broken areas. So it's repent, believe, and fight. Friends, faith without works is dead. And if we are sitting in the middle of pictures of injustice and we're not engaging with them, then we're actually disobeying God's Word. Read what Zechariah 7 says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Right? That's, that's true justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, which is the immigrant, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in our heart. That's social media, right? Friends, Micah 6.8 says, Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before our God. I've had it suggested to me that I shouldn't use the term justice from the pulpit anymore. That rather I should use the term mercy because justice is too loaded. And I would just say I refuse to do that. Because Micah 6.8 says we pursue justice. I'm not talking about on the right or the left, progressive or conservative. I just mean knows in the Bible what is God calling us to as followers of Christ to pursue justice. And I will just confess to you, I'm woeful at it. This week as I was just faced with Oppressive situation after oppressive situation. I was going, Lord, show me where you want me to enter into this and how. All right, it's about to get real. I'm about to just go into some crazier space than I've, than I've been already. All right, you, you okay? I mean, y'all's faces right now. Y'all, oh man. The view from up here is telling. I'll talk about critical race theory for a second. 
All right, stretch your hammies, your quads. Let's be charitable and generous with one another. But part of the reason I love expositionally preaching through books of the Bible is it forces us to deal with things that otherwise we might ignore. So let's talk about critical race theory. Why are you talking about this, Anthony? Because it's like a grenade that's been rolled into every family, every school district, and it's tearing churches to shreds. As I brought it up with our staff team, we all asked the question, what is it? What are we even talking about when we say it? Well, let me give you a couple of definitions. Just bear with me. A lot of this comes from people far smarter than I am. But here's a definition. First off, it's part of a larger discipline. It's called critical theory. Two guys, Neil Shevney and Pat Sawyer, articulated as this. It's, it views reality through the lens of power, which we're talking about here today. And it basically sees each individual either as oppressed or oppressor. And this largely comes based on race, class, gender, sexuality, and a number of other categories. And then if we narrow it down a little bit more, there is a word that we need to wrestle with, and it's this idea of hegemonic power. Ready? Say hegemonic. Say one more time. Hegemonic. All right. Here's what that's essentially saying is um, oppressed groups, uh, as they talk about it in critical theory, aren't necessarily uh, subjected to physical force or overt discrimination but rather it's this idea of hegemonic power. This is the ability for dominant groups to impose their norms, values, expectations on society as a whole and relegating other groups to subordinate positions. So it's saying it's not so much overt as it is baked in where a dominant culture kind of pushes down other cultures. Anthony Bradley, Anthony Bradley used to actually attend New Life. He is a professor at King's College up in New York City. He's a Westman graduate. He wrote an article in Be- on the website Beautiful Orthodoxy. It's the longest title in the world. I can't remember it. It's typical Presbyterianism, right? Long titles that we can't track. Um, <clears throat> but he quotes professors Antonio de la Garza and Kent Ono as saying, here's what critical race theory is. So critical theory, here's what we're talking about with critical race theory. It's an intellectual movement that seeks to understand how white supremacy as a legal, cultural, and political condition is produced and maintained primarily in the U.S. context. So for CRT scholars, it's basically this idea that white supremacy is everywhere and naturally explains many, if not all, of the negative disparities between whites and blacks. We all right so far? Y'all are like, no. But i got to keep going because I only have like nine more minutes left in my sermon. So... Here's the problem with critical race theory, is that we typically fall in one of two camps. Either critical race theory has become inerrant doctrine for us, or it's become this anathema that if anybody talks about, they use the buzzwords like woke or intersectionality or white fragility, we dismiss it and they're Marxists and we move away. It's true. That's what's happening. Anthony Bradley, I think, offers us a more helpful paradigm. He says, hey, we need to learn how to do this like we eat a piece of chicken. We eat the meat, but we spit out the bones. I love that picture. We eat the meat, but we spit out the bones. Here's some of the meat of this. And what I mean by the meat is there are actually things to this that we need to pay attention to, that God in his common grace goodness has given us to understand some of the dynamics that are at work in our own nation. Here's the meat. The first thing we need to understand, this did not arise in the church. This did not come out of a Bible verse, right? It is a sociological discipline, similar to economics, similar to whatever political party you adhere to. 
That is a discipline. Those are not biblical things. Okay? What the sociological discipline does, though, is, is there are actual helpful truths in it. Friends, this hegemonic power thing is real. It's real. My white brothers and sisters, there are so many things that you and I just can't get because of the color of our skin. We haven't had to live it. We haven't had to endure it. We need to listen. We need to not dismiss folks when they start saying, no, this is what I've experienced. That's what it means to bear one another's burdens. We don't call them a Marxist. We don't excuse them and show them the door. I liken it to this. As I've walked with people who have experienced abuse, it's like the first time the abused hear this category of, oh, this is what abuse is. This is what I've been experiencing. It finally gives them a voice to say, that's it. It's finally in the light. It's finally in the mainstream. This is what I've been experiencing so much of my life. Listen to me. And when we just dismiss it because we don't like the buzzwords, we're stomping on their pain. Friends, this is a great opportunity for us to begin to have coat hooks to listen to our brothers and sisters of color. Like I did with my friend on the bed the other night sitting in our hotel room listening to the horrors that he and his wife and his children have experienced. Listen. Don't be me monsters. Quit talking. Ask the Lord how he would have you engaged there. Here's some of the bones. And I just want to be careful about this. I am not an expert, but this is in general what I see. Critical race theory is actually built as a worldview. It's built as a worldview. It's built to answer our most basic questions. Who are we? What, are, what is our fundamental problem? What is the solution to that problem? What are our primary moral duties? How should we live? What is our Savior? And the answers in critical race theory will be different than the answers from a Christian worldview. The meta-narrative in a Christian worldview is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Sin is our ultimate problem, and Christ is the only Savior. The meta-narrative with critical race theory is oppression to liberation, power is our main problem, and liberation is our Savior. And while there are truths to that, that is a very small aspect of the Christian worldview. Christians, we have to have a more critical eye as we read and study these things. I also believe that critical race theory oversimplifies people and sin. To put people in two categories of oppressor and oppressed, well, there's so much more to it. I love Mike Emlet's picture. As we look, Every time you look at another brother and sister in Christ, you are looking at a sinner and a saint and a sufferer. We have to engage in that paradigm. And so, friends, can I just encourage us, engage with it, but engage with it critically, but also be so charitable, listen, careful, engage where the Lord opens doors for you to engage in. All right, lightning round for the last three things that we see here where we can live like me monsters. Ecclesiastes 4, and this is envy. I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So sometimes we have an eye towards our neighbor, but you know what we're doing when we're looking at them? I want their stuff. I want their life. I want their spouse. I want their kids. I want their house. I want their job. I want their power. And this is saying this is vanity. Here's the next one is laziness. 
Laziness is the next way we become me monsters. And I would say this, as we look at our culture, these next two are the two ditches that we fall in. It's laziness and frenzy. Friends, that's, that's, that's where we live right now. Most of us have a temptation to fall into one of these two ditches. Here's laziness. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness and two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. That folds his hands and eats his own flesh, that's somebody who just fails to embrace life. They fail to actually work. You know what work is? Work is something given by God to glorify Him. It's also something we do to love our neighbor. Friends, every job you have impacts other people. So to choose not to work or to do it in a way that is unjust, uncaring, unloving, that is envious or whatever that may be, to, to just make more money, then, then, then it's horrific. The reason it says he eats his own flesh is this is a person who sits there and, and just consumes off of other people until the cupboards are bare and the only thing they have left is their own flesh. It's literally a picture that laziness will destroy us. To identify if this is a struggle of yours, here's a question. Who is doing the work that you are feeding off of so you don't have to do it? Ask that question. Here's the next one. It's frenzy. It's frenzy. Again, I saw the vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of for pleasure? This is also vanity and unhappy business. This is the opposite of laziness. This is someone who just has their focus on the frenzy of climbing the corporate ladder or building reputation uh, or whatever it may be. What they find, though, is it says when you get to the top of the ladder, you look around and you're all alone. Matt Chandler, a pastor that I like to follow, he said this. He said, I've never had a daughter walk into my office and say, I hate my father because he dropped me off at school in a beat-up pickup truck. Or I hate my father because he wasn't able to buy me the pony or the boat or send me on the international trips from school that I really wanted. But Matt Chandler says this, he said, I've had a lot of daughters who have walked into my office who hate their fathers, who could have bought the school, who sent them to every single thing in the world, yet never knew the love of their father. It's never been given to them, and they have a completely warped sense of their own worth and value. As one person said, it's possible to know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. That's the picture we have here of frenzy. To identify where this is happening in your life, it's this very question that he asks, who is this really for? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure for? Is it yourself? Is it the me? Or is it the we? Verse 6 gives this picture of, of really, at least from a conventional wisdom standpoint, what we aim for is modest demands which will yield inward peace. So here's the final thing I want to read to you, and it's, the turning point where it talks about loving our neighbor and therefore loving ourselves. You will see that others begin to get added in in this passage. This is something that maybe you've seen, read, or demonstrated at a wedding. We did one uh, recently with Connor Gill and, and Abby Faust where the two of them just put together this chord of three. Here's where this comes from. It says, better is a handful... Oh, 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 wrong one. Four, nine to twelve. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, 
and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Friends, what this is basically saying is companionship is better than loneliness. I want to say this because I have had my single brothers and sisters in this church say, oh, you mentioned the marriage thing, right? They've said new life can be an awfully hard place to exist because here in the Burbs, it's made up of a lot of marriages and families. And I would just say this, this is not uniquely talking about marriage. It's talking about companionship that requires risk. It's talking about companionship that enables another person to enter into the holy of holies in your heart where not another human being is, but where you can actually reveal to them your sin struggles, the things that you won't share with other people, where you will bring to light the dark corners of your life. And I will just say this, and one of my professors said this in seminary, and I wholeheartedly agree after seven years of pastoral ministry, the first sign that a person or family isn't doing well is they disappear from their small groups. They disappear from community. They live isolated lives. Friends, that's the lone animal out there ready for the lion to pounce on them. Friends, let me conclude with this. I actually believe it's totally impossible for us to live the we-centered life on our own power completely and utterly impossible. At least it is in my life. Maybe you're a lot better off in life than I am. I don't know. But the only thing that I see as I look in God's Word that will change the me monster, I don't want to call it a we monster, but it's this reality of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And it's us looking to the grace of God Himself who actually has an answer to what we do with power, who actually has an answer to when we find ourselves trying to fulfill ourselves with, with laziness or busyness or envy. We have a Christ who, in Hebrews 12, says we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know that you're the joy set before Him? Do you know that when He said, I, I don't see equality with God, something to be grasped, I'm going to humble myself and let a bunch of me monsters murder me? He did it for you. He didn't just take the reins of power back. He laid them down so that you would have life eternal. Until we see that gospel, we will not change. Our hardened hearts of stone must be regenerated, made alive again. You know, with critical race theory, I don't think they know what to do with power. What happens when the oppressed actually gains power? Then they're the oppressor. Christianity actually has a picture of what happens. And it's actually the laying down of power. How that looks in every single situation of oppression, I don't know. That's a more nuanced conversation to have. Please don't light me on fire for that statement. 
But that's what we see in King Jesus. So friends, can we lift our eyes off of ourselves and to Jesus and to trust him to empower us to live a life that is just, appropriately working, not lazy, making every effort to work for him, for our neighbor, and for his kingdom. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, help us. As we leave, help us. As we go to July 4th celebrations where um, we're going to come down on different places about our quote-unquote freedoms that we have, as we have opportunity to talk to those who don't know you, as we have opportunity to be the fragrance of Christ, Lord, would you give us your Holy Spirit to not be me monsters, but to ask the question, how do I turn from me to we? Lord, from our brothers and sisters who do find themselves oppressed, Lord, as this may have scratched a scab off, Lord, I pray that you will comfort them. Father, for those of us who have turned a blind eye to injustice and oppression, would you open our eyes? Lord, for the heart that has relied upon everything but you for salvation, for restoration, and for redemption, Lord, I pray that that you will help them to see the picture of them being that joy that you set before them that caused you to be crushed for them. And Lord, may that warm their hearts to the grace of the gospel for the first time. Go with us, we pray in your name. Amen.